you always have to take the extra time and take the extra step to then do the proactive part, right? Yeah. You don't just put out the fire. You think about where did this fire start and what caused the fire? And can we create something that actually addresses this fire? In the case of our team, can we make some money from this fire, right? And so I think that, you know, like the fire is a demand of some sort, right? And how do you actually take this action that you're putting it out into a service, right? Because everything fundamentally has value. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, is a great day. I get to talk to Jen Chang. Jen is actually a former classmate of mine. So if you detect a lot of warmth in this conversation, it's just really great to be able to talk to her and just unpack what she's been learning uh, throughout the years. So she's creative director at Common, um, which is the nation's leading co-living residential brand and operator. Since joining the company in 2017, she's overseen the architecture and interior design departments and also um, leading some interesting research on shared living. Um, she also currently teaches at uh, the Urban Planning Program at Columbia University's GSAP. Uh, thank you so much, Jen, for joining me. It's going to be fun. Hi, George. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we get to just have one of our long conversations, but, you know, in public. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So we'll just kind of start. I gave a little bit of a brief synopsis about your background, but we'd love to kind of unpack that a bit further. What's been your trajectory so far? So without just like listing off my CV. I think, you know, like a lot of people, I didn't start undergrad in architecture and I actually studied economics. And for those of you that are curious, it's really boring. And so I found architecture when I was right after undergrad. And it's just one of those aha moments. It's like, I love the people. I love the approach. And it's a little bit like, where have I been this whole time? And so, you know, next thing I know, I was at Columbia GSAP where I met you, I think probably like on the first day. And, you know, I think it's been just like a series of very lucky, let's call them experiences in New York City. So I've been here for just 12 years now. And so after Columbia, or actually during Columbia, I worked at a few internships. I worked for a digital design firm in Brooklyn called Brooklyn Digital Foundry. That was a ton of fun. Um, I also went to Tokyo and worked for King Okuma for one summer. And then after that real world started, joined Shop Architects, where I met, or I didn't meet, sorry. I, I actually started on the same day as one of your other interviewees, uh, Louisa, from last last session, maybe. Um, and, you know, at Shop, I guess I was just extremely lucky, but I worked on, I worked on a stadium. I worked on two residential towers. I worked on a hotel in Williamsburg. And... All of those got built. Am I crazy? Yeah, all of them got built. One of them is under construction. So three of them got built, one of them is under construction. And so it's just a really kind of incredible uh, time to be in New York. Construction was really booming and just get involved with all these high profile, extremely exciting projects. And I think it's worth mentioning that kind of a geek. So if you'll remember from grad school, like I was always scripting. That's also what I was doing at shop. So most of my work was kind of parametric facades and parametric related kind of database related work. And then about three years ago, so in 2017, I joined Common. Look, I did read off my resume. <laughs> so I joined Common and um, 
I guess I'll speak a little bit more about it later, but I was the first architect at the company. And yeah, that's my kind of trajectory. So what for those that I, I kind of described a little bit, but what's your take on like what the what the one liner is for what common is and what common's doing? Oh God, one liner. Uh, it's a mouthful. Could be a little longer. Could be a little longer. Yeah, I, I think I'll try to explain it as I would to a friend or maybe my parents. But the way I would say it is common is a brand operator. And so what that means, the most synonymous thing is like a hotel brand, like the standard or the W or something like that. Um, but we are a brand operator for co-living residential, but we are not specifically co-living. We specialize in co-living, we specialize in micros, and we also have a ton of residential uh, mm-hmm. multifamily properties. And the idea here is that, you know, Common kind of has two customers. We provide, you know, really smart, affordable apartments for today's renters, but also to the other clients, which are the developers, we have a design and a tech-enabled platform that brings much higher returns, um, higher density, and just like an innovative product. And so Common kind of sits at the intersection of, you know, technology, real estate, and property management. Oh, that's fascinating. And um, and in your current day to day, I mean, I'm assumed that there's just been from from your time at at shop to common, there's probably a thread line in the sense that both companies might share a similar perspective on on the industry or what or like their place in design. In, in shops, instance, it's it's a very business oriented company. They think kind of business first, I would say. It's like mm-hmm. everything, all the innovation that happens is not just for the sake of innovating. It's because they also do see a potential impact on their client's business to some degree and uh, to some capacity. In common, it seems that you're, you've taken that kind of logic and now verticalized it to some degree into one specific typology or maybe a couple of, sub, of similar typologies mm-hmm. of projects. Do you see, have you picked up on that or yourself, like from in your current role, like how has that transition been for you and what kind of analogies are there now that you are more uh, of the owner in some capacity, but also not because you're also trying to, you know, source partnerships with developers as well. So just, it's curious. So I guess I'll, I'll say that, you know, when I joined Common as the first architect, in a way they didn't really know why they needed an architect. Hmm. Like they knew we, we need to get an architect, we're a housing company. But when I showed up, it was like, what is my job? And they couldn't really tell me. And so I think, you know, I really had to figure it out from scratch. I have a story that I tell everybody, so I'm sure you've heard it. <laughs> um, but my first day, or maybe it's my first week, I was walking around asking for plans. I was like, hey, you know, we have 12 properties open. Where are the plans? <laughs> and people were like, staffing plans, financial plans, like, pl- what do you mean plans? I'm like, floor plans. And they're like, yeah, we don't have that. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's really from scratch, right? It really is kind of a new world. And so in a way, everything that I've done so far is some sort of building off of what I knew before, right? Mm -hmm. Which is everything I learned at shop. And so, you know, you did mention a couple of those things. I think that anything from like how to be creative, how to interact with clients, what are they looking for? And a lot of it is actually just understanding your stakeholders, right? I think being at the table as an AOR interfacing with clients is a fundamentally different relationship from being there as a brand rep, right? And so I think just understanding project teams and dynamics and the objectives of your stakeholders really helped us build up, you know, our intent as a department in a way. And, you know, aside from that, I think it's like, 
I think about shop all the time. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think about till this very day. I think any problem I come into, I think what would they have done at shop? And, you know, right now we are working on just like financing and accounting really. And, you know, I think back to the shop days and I think, how did they staff this project? How did they account for the time? Um, how did they do this? So I think, um, you know, like being, it being a carryover is a pretty direct application for me personally. And in your current role coming in as the first, well, you came in as the first architect, but now you're a creative director. How do you go from this blank slate, this amorphous position where they think that they need you for some perspective, but then as the company's maturing, it's probably like a kind of back and forth between maybe own interest too, and where you see the, the best use of your skill sets, or did you feel like there's actually a stretch also personally having to go through that? to define the role itself till now? I think that I would say maybe something crazy, like 75% of my energy is spent towards the definition of my mm. role. And then eventually my team, eventually my department, and now, you know, the group as a whole. I think that, yeah, it's, it's a struggle, right? I think it takes a lot of balancing of the reactive and the proactive. You know, I think you you get exposed to different opportunities and you said, wait, as an architect, this is how I would solve it. Has anybody thought of this yet? And more often than not, the answer is no, right? Because mm-hmm. you come to the table with something and people don't a- approach the problem the same way when they come from different fields. And so I think it's been a lot of learning about the value of architecture in the world, right? It's just a direct application of a, a field on your own. And you have to set the brief yourself. No one's going to tell you what you need to do. And so, I, I mean, is your question, how do you do it? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a little bit of the how, but it's obviously like anything that's kind of brand new. There's a lot of probably second guessing. There's a lot of, it's continuously evolving. So you basically have to go from that kind of amorphous state to something more defined. And yeah. even even at the current state, I'm sure that like, there's probably a target that Common's trying to hit next year that's going to have to redo everything. And most companies go through that growth process, right? They go from like zero to five employees. And then what worked there doesn't work anymore when you go from five to 20, because it's exponential now. It's communicating. Everything becomes harder being synced up and everything else. And I'm curious, like what were maybe, maybe a more concrete way to talk about it. It's like, what were those step functions for you? Where like, oh shit, we have to grow quickly or we have to go from this point to another point and maybe what were those specific problems? It's a bit of a blur. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. And I mentioned the reactive earlier, and I, I think I didn't finish mentioning the important part, which is the proactive, right? And so I think, like you're saying, you're reacting to a lot of change. I think overall company object- objectives, the state of the world, what people are demanding of you, what clients are demanding of you, and kind of dealing with those problems, but I think you always have to take the extra time and take the extra step to then do the proactive part, right? Yeah. You don't just put out the fire. You think about where did this fire start and what caused the fire? And can we create something that actually addresses this fire? In the case of our team, can we make some money from this fire, right? And so I think that, you know, like the fire is a demand of some sort, right? And how do you actually take this action that you're of putting it out into a service, right? Because everything fundamentally has value. And so, you know, it's very draining at the end of the day. I think that I have a rabbit hole personality, which is 
you can't show me an issue without me being like, well, then what's this? But what happened before that? And it's a pain in the ass to work with. So um, if any of my team is here, I'm sorry. Um, But I think it does take that extra step of doing the proactive on top of the reactive all the time to be able to grow at every step. Yeah, I've heard it described in a way about being on a spectrum of going from an individual contributor to thinking about strategy. And when you're early on in kind of a new role, like you're very focused on the IC work, right? Just like, I got to get the work done. I have to do the drawings. I have to do this. And a lot of times the real maybe trick to it, if for people that are interested in kind of like, how do I go into that next step is figuring out the time and space to be able to think more strategically about what you're doing. Because if you don't, then like you're just, and, and like your, the, your rabbit hole uh, kind of reference is poignant in the sense of like, what's the first order here? Like first order principles is like, how do I go to the root cause of this to maybe unpack everything of what I'm doing? Maybe I'm just like focusing on unnecessary work when I really should be stepping back and really defining the problem at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then, then you design from there what you're working on, how you're working, whatever, whatever it ends up being, right? Maybe, maybe part of that's also like your background in scripting, which basically it forces people to think that way, right? It's very logic oriented. You have to start from like the very beginning of something and build up to it incrementally to get to the end. There's a whole notion of going back and like standing back and seeing how it works to then mm-hmm. redesign that script to be smoother, cleaner, with less code. So I don't know. I, I'm trying to connect some parallels here, but I think you hit the nail on the head, but it might be, you know, not such a positive quality sometimes. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can see it's a double-edged sword. You know, you can't keep optimizing the model. It's not worth your time sometimes. Um, right. That's a yeah. really good point, right? A, a model's only good for us at a certain sort of scale. Yeah. That's well, that's why I play video games. So it takes care of that need. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So in that, in, in that kind of the spectrum of going from individual contributor to then figuring out like at some point you have to figure out how do I build a team around me to then be able to execute a broader strategy in a way that makes sense for the goals of the business. And how is that, like what maybe we can talk just about how the team is structured today, because that can give us some sort of ideas to like what you took to get there maybe. Yeah, sure. So our team has, I think, 15 people right now. So it's a 15x multiplier from just me, but in the grand scheme of, you know, startup exponential growth, it's minuscule, right? Hmm. Um, But I think what a lot of people will agree is that 15 is a great number. It's a great size team. And um, I think you have the right synergy and you have the right kind of studio culture right now. So it's really great. Within that group of 15, there's kind of two departments. One is architecture and one's interior design. But I think if I were to step back and just talk business for a second, I think unlike a lot of similar startups like WeWork or Domeo or um, like either in the hospitality space or in the co-working space, I think we're a little bit different in that we don't own our buildings and we don't own the retrofit of those buildings. Like I mentioned the hospitality model before, like the standard or the W, those buildings are owned by a developer and a building and they build a building, they go to the W and they say, Hey, what does the W look like? Can you come and manage my property and put your brand on it? Can you operate my building as a W? And so the W will say, okay, here, you have to design to these standards. You have to work with our design team to make it our quality. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to tell you, you know, what kind of financials you can generate. Right. And, and kind of a deal is formed. 
That's exactly how our company works. We are the brand operator. But I think what that means in terms of just kind of a design organization is that we don't hire the AOR. We are not the AOR. Um, we don't hire the GC. There's no construction portion that we go out and perform that belongs to us. And so what we do is we really hold the developer's hand through what they need to build. And we work with their project teams. We sit in their meetings and we kind of participate in helping them understand what our product is. So I think with that as a premise, um, maybe I'll give you kind of a chronological order of, of, of a project cycle of how we're involved. I think first at, Incep- at conception, you know, a developer will come to us and say, hey, I heard about co-living or I heard about common. I hear you guys can do things. Can you tell me what it looks like on my property? So our architecture team will do a feasibility study in conjunction with the real estate team. And the deliverable is like a vision, a, a density, um, a set of rents, and kind of just like a product, right? It's this is what we can build here, and this is how much it will generate, and this is how much it will cost to run. Um, so it's kind of a design pro forma that we deliver to the clients um, to convince them, hey, you should build a common here. That's this is good for you. And then from that point on, our involvement varies based on market, based on client profile, whatever their risk appetite, what, what have you. But we are either on the lightest end, design advisors, where, like I said, we sit at the table and you know, help them along the way. Or on the heaviest end, we are hired as interior designers to do drawing sets. And so we're, hi- we're a hireable consultant as well if you just want us to do the execution. After that, after the kind of design development, we also take care of all the furnishings. And again, it's kind of as a contractor, we don't own the furnishings, but we say, hey, you know, pay us, we'll buy, procure, and we'll select, procure, and install all of the stuff for you. Because most multifamily developers don't, um, they don't deal with furnishings usually, because apartments don't typically come furnished. And then, you know, last but not least, there's a lot of work in just marketing, visual content, photography, leasing plans, you know, anything kind of design oriented from that point on. But I think in chronological order, the most important part is probably this last part, which is the the research. So there is a feedback loop where after we design everything, we're studying it. We're taking the data on, did it rent well? Did it show well? Did it lease well? Like what are the occupancy rates? Are people happy there, right? What's the MPS? And we are taking that and turning it back into our knowledge set. MPS stands for Net Promoter Score. And I think it's an industry, well, not even a specific industry, but it's just a standard for measuring customer satisfaction. And it's kind of a tried and true method where everything hinges on one question, which is, would you recommend this to a friend? And it's a yes or no. And the result of that question statistically yields a score. And so you can imagine a company like Apple will have a super high MPS versus a company, who should I shit on? Comcast. They'll have a super shitty MPS. That's a fair game. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair game. I think I really want to give it that. I was like, ooh, who do I hate? Yeah, so we measure all these metrics and we turn it back into essentially design guidelines. A good simple example is like sharing ratios, right? What's the difference between two people sharing a bathroom and three people sharing a bathroom? You can actually measure that in performance and you can actually measure that in rent. You can actually say, you know what, somebody will pay this much to not share and have a private bathroom maybe. And so we do spend 15 to 20% of our time on these initiatives, just building up our knowledge base of 
to actually understand the subject matter, right? To know how to design for co-living in the first place. So I think that's kind of the, what the team does. And it, it's quite a bit for 15 people. So on your team, do you have, who's doing the analysis part of that? that is, is that on the real estate team? Is that part of your team? It's everyone on the studio team has dedicated 15% of time to spend on what we call initiatives. And it's that. And we, you know, we get help from, there's data analysts and there's a business intelligence department. So people who can like work in SQL and pull source, pull data from other sides of the company, like the performance metrics and link it to spatial metrics. And, you know, we make these and sometimes they don't say anything, but, you know, we have them real time and there's just continuous research projects to, it starts with a hypothesis and then we try to figure out, okay, on the subject, what are we, what's our stance? What are we trying to say? And so, you know, it can be, you know, like the example I gave you the bathroom sharing ratios, but it can also be like, let's talk about package lockers. What's our stance on package lockers? What do we want to do here? And so we will often loop in people on the pricing team, people on the real estate team, people on the property services team to understand their needs and customer support is a big one. You learn a lot about people, people and architecture specifically from the customer support and their data. It's super interesting. What, uh, I'm just curious, what kind of platforms does uh, that team use for success? Um, which teams? And sorry, uh, which the customer support. Customer support actually uses Salesforce now. I think we transitioned a bunch of times, but now our, a lot of our members are, uh, members facing kind of internal software is all Salesforce-based or Salesforce-powered. Yeah, I, I think we'll, we'll pick up on this a little bit towards the end because I'm interested in like the application of some of what you've learned potentially back into a more traditional office. And I'm curious about the success or sorry, the customer service aspect because <laughs> that's obviously maybe a little bit more difficult within a normal organization, but it's actually tied to, you know, a lot of thinking around post-occupancy. What does that mean? And maybe there's some inspiration for some folks that are on the call. And so in the kind of the team structure, what have you identified as being the, some of the biggest challenges and actually getting, I mean, it's 15 people, hiring is hard. What have been the biggest challenges of getting to that point today? I think I mentioned earlier, it's like that constant. Well, first of all, hiring is a ton of work. I think I hired probably like eight or nine folks that are currently on the team now. And, you know, like everyone is a person and everyone is special and, you know, you don't want to mislead somebody. And it's a lot of communication, right? I think you have to be upfront about what it is and what it isn't. I actually spend a lot of time telling candidates, like, this is not a, a typical design firm. We're not here just to do this. this. There's like different objectives. and But I think that there's the part where there's a lot of time being spent on hiring and on picking out the right people that you want to join the team. I think that another difficult part of scaling is, you know, like you mentioned, just objectives are changing. And so the org has to shift all the time, right? And you can imagine like reorg all the time is um, not the most fun, especially for the team that exists, right? It's, yeah. it's, there's no consistent career ladder and there's no hierarchy. It's just a blob. that, And you kind of also lose your trustworthiness if you're like, hey, this is where you sit today. Like tomorrow it's different, right? So I think it's a lot of uneasiness. Another thing maybe I want to point out is the balance between external knowledge and internal knowledge. So, you know, like I mentioned, there's a lot of 
what we do here, which is the application of our own knowledge base. And it takes a long time to learn all of it, right? Like it's a lot of approach. It's a lot of thinking. It's a lot of knowing how the place works. You know, I mean, most designers don't know anything about property management because why would they, (laughs) right? And so there's kind of a six month training period and it's not formal training, but it's, I, I think everyone says after six months, you get like an aha moment, like, oh, I get it now. Yeah, everything clicks. <laughs> yeah, everything clicks. And I think it's it's kind of balancing that because if you find a great candidate who brings in a ton of external knowledge, do they have the aptitude to actually take on the internal part? Because it's just as important, right? But if you find someone who doesn't have enough external knowledge, who's going to go up against the big institutional client with like 40 years of experience sitting on the other side of the table? So I, I think it's just about finding the right person that can eat both at all times while you scale. Do you have specific <laughs> questions that you ask that are in the interviewing process that help tease that out for you? You know, not specifically, but like one that I'm sure everybody uses is just, you know, what are you the most excited about given this opportunity, right? And it's a good one to ask towards the end because they've already talked to enough people at that point. And you get a sense for like how much they've taken the information you've spent so much time, you know, communicating to them and where they're at on it. And, you know, if they're just regurgitating what you said back to you, that's not great. But if if they've really been insightful and related it to their own experience, you can just kind of tell off the bat that they have the capacity to take it on. And I also want to say that sometimes what I love is when people add a new fresh perspective to it their reaction to what, how they can bring value or, you know, what they think of what you're doing here. Even like, I love it when there's a criticism, actually, not a lot of people go for that. It's just great. It's like, oh, okay, you're going to think on your feet and you're going to take what you know and, and bring that here. So I think that's a pretty good question. That back and forth is really helpful because it also helps to almost play out what it would be like to work with this person. If they do push back with the criticism, how's that delivered? And that kind of simulation is really, really helpful. And I I think it's really important in the context of what what you talked about too, when you mentioned how everybody has 15%, right, of their time allotted for leading initiatives or participating initiatives. And that means that the person that's in that seat has to be able to maybe both have a little bit of the experience, but the self-confidence, plus also a lot of other other attributes to be able to take that on and like see that as something – to be excited about and, and to be able to kind of lead and, and lead a party initiative from scratch is not as easy to find as it might, might seem. Yeah. And um, I think it, it might be worth mentioning that because our design services are relatively light touch, other than the actual interior design portion, you know, we have 94 active projects split between the 15 of us. And I, I think what that means is there's almost no oversight. It's, do you understand the team's objectives? If so, have fun. Here's a client. Actually, here's 15. Do your thing, right? And so everybody's in very much this like sink or swim autonomous situation, which, you know, some people really enjoy. And we as a team develop more overarching concepts, overarching methods, but on a project to project basis, everybody has to figure out what they want to do and how to ask for help when they need it. How do you provide feedback in that context? So our company culture actually 
has a very intense feedback loop. So we have a quarterly performance review process. Oh, did you, you went through that too, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. We had, we had one as well. Yeah. When I, when I, when I, uh, it's a lot. It's really time consuming, <laughs> especially when you have like seven direct reports. You might as, you're like doing performance reviews all year. But, you know, it's really great because I think that just culturally, everybody's very upfront. And there's, I mean, this is something that, you know, I learned from coming to a tech startup, right? This is like night and day from traditional architecture where you gave feedback once a year and it was very not upfront, right? It's like in your pent up anger from the past year and you're like, you were great. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think here it really comes from our CEO and he like, I think we've had so many times where we're like, can we stop doing quarterly reviews? And he's like, no, I really believe in this. And there's a book that always gets talked about called Radical Candor, which mm-hmm. you know, is very popular in, in, this, in the tech world where, you know, you practice just saying what you want right then and there. And of course, there's like a nuance to delivery and, and understanding what the other person might be feeling and, and what you right. want, how to Some actually build a productive conversation. Right. Some EQ. Yeah. Which isn't natural and always easy. But I think that across the board, everyone has a little bit of that built in. And so I think that is actually very helpful. The other thing I will say is because everyone has so many of their own projects, we know something's wrong when the client complains, right? And so, you know, please don't fuck up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That makes sense. You looking back now from where you are now and and when you started, you mentioned a little bit about how the feedback process was maybe one of those things that was new, but what other things have you picked up along the way that you feel have made you a better leader? And yeah, I'd love look to unpack that. I think the biggest thing I've learned since leaving shop is this idea of advocacy. And I actually, this is not like a thing that, there's not a word that people use a lot in startups or anything. It's, it's not like NPS. <laughs> it's not an acronym or anything like that. But I actually think it's just kind of the core nature of my role, I've realized, is to advocate for first myself, then for the team. Because advocacy is really this thing you don't think about, but you need to constantly communicate to other people in the company why what you do matters. And what that does is um, you're opening doors, right? You're, you're communicating to everyone, hey, this is what I'm going to do. This is why I'm going to do it. It's going to be awesome. And this is what's going to happen after we do it, right? And, and you also have to advocate for like how long it's going to take and, you know, what is your vision? And I think it's one thing as a leader to roll up your sleeves and do it, which is, I think, a super, super important quality as well. But I think to, you know, pick up your head and just constantly like bang the drum and let everyone know why, like what the hell it is that we're up to here. It unlocks budgets and motivates the team and you get clients that way, right? You tell the client what you're going to do and they sign up for it, they pay you for it. And so I think there just isn't, like no one told me that that would be the majority of my job description, but I think that I've really come to learn that in every aspect of what I do, including this very conversation we're having, you know, I, I'm constantly advocating for design. And, and maybe one thing that's, um, oh, okay, I brought props, actually. Um, I think it's a good, a good time to bring them. <laughs> when I was first thrown into the this current position, I asked a friend of mine who is a 
graphic designer at Spotify or a UX designer at Spotify. Hey, do you like know of any books about, you know, design within organizations or tech startups, like anything that might help me? Because I realized I was in totally kind of unknown waters at that point. Um, And so he rolled his eyes and he was like, I think there's an O'Reilly book called Org Design for Design Org. Um, So I bought it and it looks like this. It's the lamest thing. Oh, wow. I thought it was a joke. It's not a joke. It's not a joke. It's really thin. um, And it, it was, you know, like a very, very quick read. But it's really fascinating because they, the perspective is that you are a design organization that lives within a larger organization. That's awesome. Right? And that's something I never thought about because at shop, just awesome clients and awesome projects get handed to you and you just have to script something amazing. And you never have to think about like, you never have to tell them we, we're going to design because, right? Whereas, you know, the advocacy thing that I'm talking about, you, everything you design like most people don't know why you need to design it. You need to explain it to them. (laughs) And so I think that this book talks a lot about that. I think it also obviously has a lot of like organizational, very boring language, uh, frankly, but it talks about the function of a design organization and how it connects to specifically the executive suite and the C-suite. And so I've learned a lot from it in kind of understanding that. And I think, you know, that really helped me develop more of the leadership position. And it comes from this very ugly book. So <laughs> that's awesome. I n- I've never seen that book before. And I've looked for like design organization, well, more like org design books before, but I've never come across that. So I'm going to buy that after this call. So that, that book could serve as a, maybe an inspiration, but what other experiences have you had that kind of inspired you or have helped you along the way? Is it just that book? Is it some of your experiences from shop or people that you know around you? I feel like I just received an award and these are all the people I want to thank. (laughs) Um, But it really is just a lot of encouragement I've received. I think that having reassurance that you're doing it right when you're just out on a limb all the time really helps you keep going, right? Because you just got to go. And I think that learning from our CEO is incredibly interesting and he's just unlike anyone I had met before and so Brad Hargraves is our founder he also founded the startup general assembly which is a trade school like a digital trade school and so he we're the exact same age actually he's a a month younger which really makes me mad but um you know he is just an incredibly brilliant person that um is frankly kind of fearless and I think that I've learned so much from this experience. And I'll kind of explain, when I first joined Common, the idea of co-living was like, oh, you have a brownstone with maybe 20 people living in it and they're gonna form an awesome community and super niche, super awesome. And it could be in Bali, it could be like digital nomads, all the, all this stuff, right? And then we, at some point realized, you know what, there's actually a ton of people who already live with roommates. In fact, like everybody. Um, yeah. And like the housing is just not built for it. And there was this like major disconnect between what developers think they're building and what, how people are actually living. Right. And then the joining thing was like Craigslist. And so we realized, you know, what we're doing is actually not a niche thing. It's actually not that special and actually shouldn't be a premium product. So we've, completely pivoted from using words like 
hive or like-mindedness or, um, you know, like roommate matching, things that are really cute and precious and kind of idealistic, we kind of just toss out the window and we said, we're here to provide housing. And that, that's kind of exactly what we've been doing. It's just high density apartments, right? And in all different shapes and sizes. And, you know, I think around last year, we were talking to a few kind of very high caliber clients. And we also realized that people with traditional buildings are also looking for just like tech enabled management platform because landlords and property managers, like that entire industry kind of sucks. It's kind of like Comcast, (laughs) you know, it's old school. It's like, there's no good tech and it's just expensive and crappy and it's just, it's archaic. And so, you know, we started expanding our platform to be just more about buildings. Why not? Right. Better property management. And, you know, you look back on 2015 and you think that's kind of silly, you know, that we wanted to create these little nomadic communities and that we completely missed the point. Right. And that was not a business that scales. But you then realize that you don't realize the next thing until you do the last. And so I think there's a fearlessness from the CEO that, you know, is, is very interesting to learn from, you know, you, you just take something on. If it feels right, you just go ahead and execute. It doesn't have to be perfect. And then you can change ways. You can just change your path and, and go on to something. The thing is you just don't know until it's there. And you don't know until you're doing it. There's a culture of like permission that has to be in place, right? And the advocacy is a great way to frame it as well. It's like the culture of permission has to be there to fail, to take chances, to take risks, and allow people, give them the time and space to be able to do that within their own workday, to be able to kind of come up with a new idea, pitch it. And if you do that well enough, you know, you have an entire organization that's actively thinking on how to improve the business every day. But it, you need that kind of structure of like the permission plus the advocacy, constantly advocating from like the, within the internal structure, right? Like from your position, advocating for your the team that directly reports to you and then them advocating for the team that reports to them. That is super critical. And it seems like Brad has kind of intuited this also from his previous experiences probably and everything else to get to the point where he has built this organization with that culture of permission. Totally. We have a company value that's make the case, take the risk, which can be dangerous at times, but it's very much alive. Yeah. That's awesome. So um, we, we are going to open up for a Q&A for uh, the next 15 minutes. If anyone has any questions, I can kind of pick them up from the Q&A area. Oh, we have some here already. So there's a question about, about how architecture firms could maybe use data to help understand their, and maybe the MPS is sort of wrapped into that, right? It's like, how does an architecture firm develop the practices to be able to understand, are they doing a great job with their clients? MPS is like a good model potentially for understanding whether your client would actually recommend you to somebody else. So, you know, from a business perspective, if the majority of work is referrals, can you get people to, or repeat work, can you get those same clients to refer other people? That That's kind of like a interesting, but to the side, you know, from what you've learned, those kind of tools and methodologies, do you feel though that the era of conventional architecture practices has passed? Era of conventional practices has passed. I mean, I think that, I think data is a tricky thing because at a company like Shop, data was incredibly important. You know, in order to do those complex designs, you need a lot of people who think in metrics, in 
organization and a management that can get complex technical like thoughts coherently into a kit of parts, right? And I, I think that for so many architects, that's just fundamental to why they're in the field in the first place. It is for the the organizational aspects and, and the um, the metric aspect. And so, you know, I think that in terms of just architecture and how it's become so digital, you know, in any firm really, it really has an important role to play. I personally have a soft spot for just like that, the hand sketches and the models, right? And I, I think anyone who's had the traditional training has that as well. And so, you know, I would be the last person to say, you know, every firm needs technology and data and like it needs to be tech forward. Otherwise you're, you know, gonna get left behind. I very much don't think that's the case. And I think it's just about, you know, if you, how you approach your craft. Right. And again, it's like, it's what you're after. If you're after a beautiful museum building, that's like all about the sketch, right? It's all about composition. Why do you need data? It's just a good composition. Like you need so much more practice and finesse to do good composition. Right. I think at, I already talked about the application at shop, which I think is really neat, you know, and at common work, also doing it in a totally different way, right? We have access to all these people actually living there. Right. And so we can use that performance to understand how are we doing? And so I think that's a rare and unique thing that I'm leveraging. I, just on that note though, I do want to add very quickly, um, I hate unnecessary data or technology application. I think I often, often see or hear people who are optimizing or building databases for things that are actually not useful and have the execution to and collection work to the actual thing that you're getting out of it is just not worth it. And you're doing scripting for scripting sake or data for data sake. And, you know, I just, I think in my ideal mind, um, I would like young designers to be aware of that, that, you know, it's not, it's not all about tech. It's that's not just the future. And um, it's about important applications. Do you have like a specific example in mind? Not really. I think it's just, you know, any sort of, okay, a really simple one is um, building a parametric script for something you can model, right? This is mm. like, do you need a script to iterate? If it's not saving you any time, if the design itself is not complex enough to save you time, why did you build a script? You built it because you wanted to. I know, I love that feeling. <laughs> right, right. There's, <laughs> yeah. a, there's an amazing, uh, what is it, XKCD or... Is that a comic yeah. strip yeah. that has like a, a chart where it talks about like, uh, like the value you get out of automating something that happens like one minute per day yeah. versus like one hour or five hours and how that compounds over the course of a year, which is, is always hilarious. And I use that as a reference point myself when I have a bright idea that might actually not be that impactful. So another, thanks for that. What, another question here is how could um, comments platform work? more commercial property. Is that even a thing that could happen? I'm assuming that this person, when they say commercial property, they mean like office buildings. Probably. So I think without getting into too much detail, it's definitely possible. And, you know, I think after COVID hit, there's more and more conversations of it. But actually, even um, since when I first joined, there has always been a, a running thread because you have a lot of these like older office buildings from the 70s and 80s that um, with really deep floor plates that they're actually always being tested to see if residential is the better use. 
and actually co-living plays a so I'm going to talk about layouts for a little bit, um, but co-living is actually a great use for that because if you think about typical apartment depth, if you can't get light in the deeper part of the floor plates, it's just useless, right? It's not great space. But when it comes to co-living, you can actually create a lot more shared useful functions in the inner parts of the core. It actually unlocks a lot of interesting kind of interfacing opportunities um, in terms of living arrangement. And so, yeah, I see a lot of opportunity um, and I actually see a lot of actual physical opportunity on our plate right now. So uh, it's pretty exciting. Awesome. Really, really cool. Common is more tech startup than design company. Challenge, maybe. Design firms are notoriously poor businesses. How would you suggest conventional architecture firms, one, develop scalable systems or processes, two, figure out how to innovate to improve the bottom line, or three, develop new lines of business entirely? Which is, this is kind of like the depressing question, I think, for many people. I'm curious what your take is on, on it. So similar to the previous question about conventional firms, but more from the positive perspective, like what could be done if possible? This is a really tough one. It's tough, but it's also quite straightforward. I think that I really struggle with this, and here's why. I think most people in architecture, myself included, most people in architecture and in design don't have a basic business understanding, right, of like the monetary value of what they're doing. And, you know, one argument could be everyone should get a baseline education, right? When you go to architecture school, maybe there should be a, a class that teaches you like, hey, this is how margins work. This is what profit means. And this is like how my time gets compensated, right? And, you know, it, it really is quite simple. I think architecture is a marginal, it's an incremental business. And so you have a fixed margin on every hour of work you do. Most people don't realize this. And, you know, it, the accounting of it is actually very straightforward. It's all linear. It's just multiplication, right? And I, I think you know, the understanding of accrual accounting and cash accounting and how a firm actually operates the state afloat and what staying afloat means, super useful information. I think what's even more important is um, what does a developer do? I did not understand this. Who are your clients and what do they want from you? I never understood what it actually took to put together a project from their perspective. And nobody ever taught me that, right? Like, what is the development cycle? What are they doing when they find the site? What are they doing when they meet you? Un having an understanding of that allows you to kind of communicate what you want out of it and understanding where you stand in this whole process. There's just so much I've learned that in a way I wish I knew. I wish somebody had taught me earlier on. And I think that, but the struggle I have is, I think the days where I was sitting behind my desk, I didn't know any of this crap and I'm just scripting. I think I was the happiest. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sitting there and it's, midnight and I'm like, ooh, I got this toggle to work. I just think there's so much value to that. And I think so many architects chose the profession for that reason, right? It's for the very act of doing it. That, you know, why do they have to learn about business? Why do they have to participate in this capitalistic world? Yeah, so I, I guess my answer is just like, there's an awareness portion that could be worked on. And I actually think it's fundamentally not that complicated and the awareness will bring competitiveness and will just bring more value to design. Again, that advocacy is important, but I also just love traditional arts, design, music, all of that. It, it's a suffering craft. Like we do it because we want to. So one last question. What is the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh my God. That's so hard. <laughs> okay. 
One time, my aunt in Taiwan sent me this box of Chinese New Year's goodies, and it's all the like the snacks from when I was little. And I hadn't been to, I hadn't spent Chinese New Year in Taiwan since I was like a child. I think I left when I was like twelve. And I opened the box, I just started bawling, and I think I was bawling for like a week. <laughs> it was just the sweetest thing. Um, That's so nice. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jen, for taking the time to walk us through Common, your career. It's been super illuminating and really exciting. And I just want to thank everybody for joining. Thanks so much, Jen. Really appreciate it. And thanks, everyone, for joining. My pleasure. Bye, everyone. Cheers. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.